coming to you live from high atop Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I'm Johanna Stauffer, and with me as always is another, smaller Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And this is the Mildly Alarming Podcast. Episode 71, Otto and the Magic Hat. Welcome back, everybody, to the Mildly Alarming Podcast, the show that cooks up hot, hot board gaming-related conversation and flops it right onto your plate. Uh, I'm Tom Rich. And I'm Johannes Stauffer. Uh, and he's using the grill I'm not allowed to after the accident. Nearly lost the entire studio. <sighs> Took his head clean off. <laughs> Who's? Mine? Our, no, our other co-host we used to have. Oh, I forgot about him. Cloronzo. Cloronzo Terrachibald. Yeah. Poor Cloronzo Terrachibald. <laughs> lost his head in a tragic grill accident. <sighs> <laughs> quality podcast quality work uh we're glad to have you here glad that you're listening to the show glad that you're choosing to spend your morning drive into the soul-crushing job that you use to put food on the plates of your ungrateful children uh with us instead of listening to the news of the day that might make you a better more informed citizen of your democracy or morning drive time radio or morning drive time radio you could be listening to that too Uh, but you're not you are choosing of your own free will, unencumbered by the dictates of a fascist dictatorship, to uh, listen to the Mustard Laser podcast. And that is something we appreciate about you, hypothetical reader. It's something that makes us happy that you would make that decision, uh, that you would choose to will as you will. You did. Reel it in there. About 20% big shoots. Uh, yep. That's what I appreciate about you. <laughs> uh, so, Johannes is referencing the excellent Canadian television show Letter Kenny just there. If you uh, aren't familiar with it, I recommend l- looking up the Letter Kenny Problems shorts on YouTube. They're pretty funny. Well worth your time. And we are in no way in- sponsored by them. My Lover Podcast is brought to you by Letter Kenny, airing at some point on whatever that channel was. I don't Only remember. in Canada. In I think Canada. it was Crave TV. Yeah. Do we? Which could be just White Castles in house. I'm going to guess it wasn't, channel. isn't. It could be, though. It could be. It's possible. Like, if White Castle were to launch their own dedicated channel for their restaurants, it would probably be Crave TV, because they that's their, their slogan, right? What you crave. And apparently what you crave is a billion garbage burgers. I don't think they even have uh, White Castle in Canada. Really? Yeah, I'm pretty sure every single uh, fast food restaurant there is a Tim Hortons. It is a Tim Hortocracy. Uh Ah, you know, Plato wrote about the dangers of Tim Hortocracy in the Republic. I think you you descend from democracy to dictatorship to Hortocracy. Yeah. I think that's the pattern that happens. Yeah. And now they're not a pure Hortocracy. They're a Tim Hortocracy, right? Sure, sure. It's a little different. It's like the difference between... Right. You know... uh, uh, Marxism and, and Stalinism or Leninism. I guess Marxism and Leninism kind of became the same. 
thing. Sort I think, of. I think Leninism emerges from, from Marxism. From Marxism, right? And then you get Stalinism, and then you get Maoism. But right. anyway, so they're not all. They're, yeah, right. yeah. Communism is not just communism. Sure, but it makes sense that they would a hortocracy be a, is not just a hortocracy. It makes sense they wouldn't be a pure hortocracy because they've got that French influence out of Quebec. Right. Yeah. Which you know they got the dual language signs, and you're not gonna get you're not gonna get the same governing because you can't have the same governing structure for every people. You know, different cultures function differently. They're going to manifest their state in a different way. Right. In the case of Canada, you know, you've got a coffee and donut based form of government, mm-hmm. um, but with a French influence. So it's uh, there's a lot of silent letters. Right. And and they don't say donut holes; they say timbits. Yeah. And that's so that's a thing. That's part of how their parliamentary processes function is timbits. Right. It makes sense, really. It's it's all understandable. What I've never understood is how poutine factors into the parliamentary process in a hortocracy. Well, a Uh Tim hortocracy. Sure. Do you have any insight? You're more into the politics. Well, yeah, my, my understanding is that it's it's a little bit it's the kind of thing that you won't actually find if you peruse the 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 secret constitution of Canada uh-huh. uh, or the double secret one. Right. Uh, it, it's more of a, a set of norms and standards that people just sort of abide by. Um, so, you know, strictly speaking, Putin does not have a voice in the hortocracy because mm-hmm. to my understanding, they don't serve Putin at Tim Hortons. No, but there is a connection in that a, a, a core element of poutine is cheese curds, which right. is produced by the same group that provides your your coffee cream and your your milk to go with your sure. Timbits, and which even goes you know into the into the cooking sure. you know, baking process. And so the fact that that group, the the dairy uh, uh, class, yeah, or caste, really, because it's really a caste more. It, it is. There's not a lot of mobility in and out of there. It's mm-hmm. very insular um the fact that they all know each other it's a pretty integrated group yeah and they all find their way both into the hortocracy but also into the world of poutine gives poutine that voice and it's right only and really, so yeah. so the, the potato class and the sort of gravy and savory sauces mm-hmm. uh which are are a class or are they a subclass of, of meats in it, general it, you know it overlaps it's, it's a but very, it allows them right uh, a voice via the dairy class that they would otherwise just not be allowed in a pure hortocracy. Exactly. But it only exists because of that sort of how it is. Yeah. You know, it's it's very much an informal structure. So it's and not it, written in anywhere. It's yeah, just and it, it could break down. It's how it's it's part of Canada and it's important, but it could break down over time. You know, all all governments depend upon these sorts of unspoken rules and norms to function. Um for example, uh ours in America we require a certain uh, number of bypass surgeries. Right. You know, and it just doesn't work otherwise. And that's just sort of how things are. There's nothing in the Constitution that forces it. But you have to have your arteries blocked to a degree before you're in and before you function. And that's just an unspoken rule or norm that, that people abide by until they don't. Right. At some point, somebody is going to be the first sitting senator who's never had his chest ripped open and a a uh, pipe cleaner rammed down his, I want to say urethra, but that's not what it's called in no, the heart. No, aorta. A, yeah, there we go. To to whack to get the plaque out of it. Right. Um, and then that's going to be a thing, and then that will start shifting how things are done. But for now, it's pretty stable. Just like how in Canada, the fact that you have to cram gravy cheese curds into your face is part of their thing. Yeah. 
and how in England you have to say things like never mind the bollocks. Well, it's I feel like though thing. in in Canada it's a little more and maybe it's just viewing it from the outside versus my my jaded view on where I I've lived all my life, mm-hmm. but uh in, in Canada it's like poutine is sort of allowed in. Mm-hmm. It's an unspoken unwritten rule, but there poutine is allowed in where here really all of the senators are in the pocket of big bypass uh-huh. and it's you know it just happened because of their iron grip on bypass surgeries well but, like I, I don't know that we'll ever see that that you know politician come up who hasn't had that well but because i don't think big bypass would allow it i don't think big po- I, I think you're giving too much credit to big poutine like it's got that smiling canadian face on it yeah but Behind the scenes, that's an iron grip. That's an iron grip of cheese and gravy. It's a cheese and gravy grip. There's no iron involved. But it's... it's <laughs> and potatoes. Don't forget the potatoes. And the taters, yeah. It, but it's holding power. I mean, and when you move against that power, that it, it, it moves to stop you. Like, And it might move in a subtler way than Big, than big Bypass does. Right. Um, you know, it might smile, it might nod a little bit, but make no mistake, it's locking you out of the circles of power the same way Big Bypass does. What I'm saying is that that is, I don't even want to call it a feature or a bug, it's just the nature of how it works. Mm-hmm. You know, those sorts of informal connections make any organization run, but certainly make the political organization of any kind of democracy run. Unless you're going to go to a very, very narrow breed of dictatorship, you've got, you're going to have those sorts of informal power structures that dictate things no matter how you write it. And the more you try to write it to prevent them, the more you're just generating more opportunities for those structures to form. Yeah. So what I think we're dancing around here on this topic is that whether you live uh, in a in a heart surgery driven democracy uh, or democratic republic or whatever you feel mm-hmm. like labeling the United States uh, or a Tim Hortocracy like Canada, mm-hmm. um, given the opportunity, whether or not you believe it actually works, what they tell you is to vote. Right. You got to go cast your ballot. And that's what we're talking about on this segment. Voting. Amazing intro, everyone. Well done. <laughs> Good work. Let's let's have a little round of applause from the production assistants on that one. Nicely done, everybody. Your vacations are uncancelled. <laughs> Voting mechanics is a mechanic that we see in real life, but we also see it in games. There are games where you vote, and then that vote impacts how the game goes forward. So we're kind of wondering, you know, is that a fun mechanic? Is that an interesting mechanic? How might, where have we seen it? How might it be implemented? What, what do we think about voting mechanics? So what do we think about voting mechanics? Well, I think it probably bears breaking down further uh, because they could be two very different discussions. You could have a secret ballot mm-hmm. like we have uh, in a in a presidential election. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can have a show of hands where you know, you know, in, you know, in a game, it's probably not a ballot. Why waste the time on writing down on slips mm-hmm. of paper and, and counting? Uh, though actually occasionally that does happen. Um, so versus I, a show of hands where now right. I kind of know you voted. Right. You, and you actually see both in the resistance, if I remember it right. It's been a while since I played it. Yep. Um, in the resistance, there's one stage of the game where you do just have a show of hands and that's what you vote. And yeah. it's known who voted what. I believe that is for who can go on a... I think you're right. It's not really... I don't think it... It might be a show of hands. 
I thought you flipped a card. Uh, it might be a token, yeah, yeah. But, it, but it's clear who voted for what. Yep. And then when you're voting on whether or not the mission succeeds or fails, that's a secret ballot. Yeah. You just put a card into the middle, and it gets shuffled up so nobody knows who voted what, and then it's revealed and the result is implemented, but you don't know who voted for what thing. Yeah. So there, there's ways to impl- one of the I mean one of the, the one of the problems with voting as a concept is it's time consuming. Yeah. You got to get everybody's input. You've got to get it in a way that makes sense for whatever your system is, and then you got to count it. But there's ways in games, especially since the voting populace in a game is so small, mm-hmm. to make it you know workable to 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 do. Yeah. Um, whether secret or not secret. Mm-hmm. Um, other ways it's been done, you know, you can do everybody points at the person they vote for. You know, you go three, two, one, point at that guy, and then you know everybody points. What did we play recently? Uh, that one does Night that? Ultimate Werewolf. Oh, that's Which right. One? Yeah, that was pretty cool. Um, you know, you can do tokens, you can do chips in a thing. A lot of ways to approach it. Um, for me, I think the key thing with voting is, or or rather, for me as a designer, the temptation with voting mechanics is always the same as it is for every mechanic with you, just to get too complicated and interesting. Mm-hmm. You pretty much are stuck with, if not simple majorities, probably no more complicated than a plurality type system. Yeah. You can't get into things like an alternative vote or a, a mixed member proportional system or any of these these voting mechanics that are designed to resolve voting problems in the real world in part because they're too complicated to execute. They take too long to resolve. Mm-hmm. And the real world has things that are important enough that you would want to go through the trouble. But in a game, nobody's going to sit there long enough while you you know, do an instant runoff vote. Right? Right. It's not going to happen. And two, in a game, you often don't have a large enough voting populace for those systems to make sense. If you've only got five people voting, that just whatever. There's no point in, in going anywhere more complicated than just a straight, simple majority. It's just not going to happen. Right. So some of the nuances of voting as a universal concept are excluded by the fact that you're playing a board game, I think. And that, I think, reduces how interesting it can be as a mechanic. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, as a quick aside, if if, uh, if you are unfamiliar with all the various terms for different types of votes that Tom just threw around, rather than trying to explain them here, I would recommend you pause this momentarily as long as you're not driving a car and go to YouTube mm-hmm. and look up CGP Grey um, Politics in the Animal Kingdom. He's mm-hmm. got a series of videos that explains most of the different uh, voting systems used in existing political entities around the world mm-hmm. in uh, terms that you can understand. Yeah, it's he's, it's quite good. Highly recommend. But uh, going back to what you were saying, I've forgotten most of it. Um, you're stuck with a relatively simple voting mechanic because yes. complicated ones are no fun to resolve and you have a very small group of people voting. Yeah, so it's interesting to see that... So in the United States, we have secret ballots when voting... For office and for Mm -hmm. for most things, for everything, is every popular vote? As far as I know, every popular vote is a secret ballot. And really, there's not a lot of reason for that. I mean, I guess uh, there is at some point your your ballot has to be secret from the governing body so they can't, Mm -hmm. you know, if were things to get bad, punish you for. But they have your name, don't they? What do you mean? It's not actually secret, right? Your name's on your ballot when it goes in? Nope. Or no, it's not. You're it's ba- just checked out that you voted. Your name is on a separate piece of paper gotcha. that is recorded that you voted, but, but, it's, but it's in no way connected to your ballot that actually goes in the machine. But the now, whole like keeping it secret from your neighbor or whatever, 
for the most part, shouldn't matter unless you have a neighbor who's a real dick. Right. The one place where you could argue there isn't a secret ballot is places like Washington uh-huh. that have um, universal mail-in voting. Uh-huh. They don't actually even have polling places. All of it's oh. mail. Yeah. Um, but the problem, the thing you run into there is that if I am, if you and I live in a house together, for example, as we do, um, <laughs> I can sit there at the kitchen table while you fill out your ballot and make sure you're filling it out the way I want right. c- by holding a baseball bat over your head mm-hmm. and then put it in the mail right away and I know what you voted. So yeah. that's, in that case, you might argue it's not strictly secret because there's nothing stopping that from happening but yeah i feel like it's pretty unlikely now in a, in a game with secret voting versus open voting there's a much bigger and much more immediate difference right because if you're going to be if, if you're voting openly you basically in both situations there's a degree of bluffing going on mm-hmm. um, and actually again going back to the resistance you see this played out pretty well if you are one of the spies and really, you you want yourself or another spy on every mission, but people are pretty sure that they know who another spy is, and you op- you openly vote on who goes on a mission, or, or rather, you openly vote once the the leader decides who's who they want on the mission, whether or not that mission should go forward. Sure. So you could throw a a no vote just to make yourself look like you're not one of the spies, right? Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of that. And then with closed voting, there's a lot of bluffing that can go on. Because you'd be like, no, I totally voted for them. Except it was a secret vote. So you can say whatever you want. Right. And so there's that real immediacy in what I've done and how I need to defend it and what it does or doesn't tell other players mm-hmm. about me. In a situation like Resistance or, or uh, One Night Ultimate Werewolf, where you're voting, basically voting someone, you know, off the island. Mm-hmm. Like, who, who is the bad guy? Who do we think is the werewolf? Yeah. Who do we think is a spy? And I think those games really implement that kind of voting very well. They're really interesting. Yeah. There's a lot of fun stuff you can do with it. And whether or not you decide to use a secret ballot or a or a open ballot for voting purposes really kind of depends on what kind of game you want, like yeah. what kind of bluffing you want your players to do. Both work very well. They're both intriguing, both interesting things. Do you often see... Uh, or rather, have you ever seen, I guess, voting used outside of a bluffing mechanic kind of game like that? I've seen it once in a game I desperately want to play, but I can't imagine a single human being that I've ever met who would want to play it with me. Uh-huh. The game is called Gnomic, and I've seen it played like on forums and stuff mainly, but it's uh, it starts out with a couple of like high-level like constitutional rules, Okay. and then the entire game is just a series of rounds of people adding rules and voting on them. And it sort of doesn't end until it develops a way to end as part of the rulemaking process. I like that idea. I think I like the idea of playing it on a forum in a play-by-post kind of situation yeah. a lot more than sitting around a table and doing it. Yeah, yeah. It definitely demand. It definitely needs a group of players willing to fully commit to this is the thing we're playing. Yeah. But it's so cool when it goes. It does it seem goes pretty well. cool. Yeah. Um, it's also free to play. It's like just online because yeah. how could it ever be anything but? Is that open or or? I guess it would have to be public voting. I think the base law is public voting. So I but, guess if you're doing it on a forum, you could use the polling. Yeah. But the thing is, too, um, there's no rule stopping those basic laws from being changed. Like, oh, I think the I, if I remember right, the version I saw, it took like like if you wanted to change one of the, the level one laws, uh-huh. it was like a two thirds majority necessary to do it. But you could you could do it. Does it um, maybe we should just look up the rules. Does it require a. Uh a set number of people or like if someone jumped into a thread later on could they could they do it 
So I'm wondering, is this a game now that you mm-hmm. can do polls and stuff on Facebook that we could run on the mildly alarming Facebook using the polling that's built into it and just start it and let it go until it I ends? I don't know how easy it would be to do on Facebook with those tools, but it's something you could run online, definitely. Sure. It might want like a wiki or something too. Okay. To to just to keep track of where the where the what the rule state is. Uh huh. But certainly it 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 benefits from being online. We'll we'll link to the Gnomic wiki page too. I just I just brought it up. Great. How does it? How do you spell it? For N- those who don't bother to look at the show notes. N o m i c. Okay. Gnomic. Um. So, yeah, so that's that's one one uh um voting game that i would be interested in trying that i think is kind that of sounds really cool I'm, I'm interested to see that done, the actually. two ideas i've thought about with voting is that i haven't found an interesting way to implement mm-hmm. you know it, or i haven't found a way to implement it in a way that is interesting to people who aren't me mm-hmm. uh and that would be engaging in a cool game uh, are neutral forces among the players that have votes uh-huh. so like for example consider a a fantasy war game uh-huh. where each player has votes but also like individual cities on the board have votes mm-hmm. and they'll decide their vote how they vote based on certain criteria so like if i have armies in their territory they might always vote with me or they might always vote with the player who has the largest grain surplus or whatever um, so not even necessarily neutral. I mean, I guess that's sort of neutral, but NPC voting yeah. entities, things I, that that sway a vote one way or the other, right. depending on. And so you could also like swell effects. and swell and shrink the number of them over the course of the game by different systems or whatnot. And so the players are motivated, gerrymandering. Yeah, gerrymandering. And so the players are vote, motivated not only to persuade one another to vote for things, but also to try to position themselves to push those neutral votes in their direction. That's one of those mechanics that I really enjoy in concept that I think a game using them would, would not interest me at all. Yeah. I think the I don't know if it's because it makes it, it tends toward creating a game around it that is just too like mm-hmm. political or Euro-y or whatever it is that I would like dislike about it or if it's the sort of designer who wants to use that game is al- or that mechanic is already going to be leaning right. toward designing that sort of game. But I think it's a kind of game that unfortunately pushes itself toward um needing a computer to run it oh yeah that could i think be too. and it's just too complicated and too much bookkeeping to make it work in a board game manner yeah and the, but uh, it's a whole different conversation so i'll just touch on it lightly um is that i would be less turned off by a a game that used those mechanics that was on my computer and like in a browser or mm-hmm. on my phone or whatever even if the theme were just like gerrymandering voting districts in in new york or whatever to win Versus that exact same concept put forward as a as a board game, mm-hmm. where now not only are is that, that's what you're doing, but also there's just so much thinky BS involved yeah. that, that that I think if you, I think I'm much more forgiving toward themes I don't necessarily find interesting when I don't also have to do a lot of work. Right. Well, and and a board game is in almost inherently more work right. than a video yeah, game just on is. the on the figuring out how to make it go yep. front yeah you're essentially telling the players you're now do run the program every round of this game yeah work through all of the steps of what i would make as a program that all happens behind the scenes in a video game yeah which is interesting but also can yeah, yeah create those issues if you could find an elegant way to do it it would be pretty cool but it's yeah. hard to yeah. find that way um, i i often blah, 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 almost wonder do you mind no go ahead um i almost wonder if it would be interesting to go actually dig into that aspect of mm-hmm. design a board game around the idea that like your brains are the computer 
making this game work. So now the game almost like you, there may be a, a goal to accomplish like a normal game, but really the game becomes how much of this can we do? Like mm-hmm. at what point is it? So it's almost like taking and leaving different mechanics or different rule sets or whatever to put together a, a game that is interesting and elegant that you can still run using just your brain. Sure. So you could push it to a point where it's just like, no, we can't do that anymore. Like those are whatever math problems that it would take too long to do or that we're just incapable of doing or these rules don't work together. Mm -hmm. It's like board game, the board game. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting to me and you and no one else. Nobody else. Certainly. Uh, But the other voting mechanic I've been kind of interested in, haven't found a home for yet, is a game that ends, that's victory condition is... The players vote for a majority of players vote for a given player to win it. Isn't that doesn't that game exist? I don't know of it if it does. Well, I thought you'd told me about it. Maybe we've talked about that as a concept. I think there's there's a board game that doesn't it, it doesn't have the voting mechanic, but it has a piece that I, I've mentioned as part of it. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I don't remember what it's called. It's it's completely escaping me. But it has a thing where. If you, 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 each player has a trait, it's like a war game. Uh-huh. Each player has a trait, and one of the traits is power behind the throne or something like that. Uh-huh. And you pick another player with power behind the throne. Right. And if that player wins, the, if the player you picked win wins, you win instead. Ah, uh, that may be what I'm thinking. And, I, and I, I've stolen that in a couple of, of sketches I've made of this uh-huh, game. Uh-huh. But I'm interested in the idea that the game win- ends when the players vote that, yeah, that guy won. Yeah, it's, it's clear that guy is the winner. That would be very, very difficult to do in a game that you didn't say, mm-hmm. like, if you, you would have to have a clock on it for one thing, but I feel like it would still be like a uh, uh, model UN style, like, d- devote a day to this yeah. kind of big game rather I, than... And that's the puzzle I haven't cracked yet, but it's yeah. it's, it's interesting to me. It's, it's once yeah, I, players, I like it. Once players vote for a winner, the player is the winner. And he's won, and now he's the victor. Now, is in your thought is it everyone or just a majority? It would like need, a simple majority. It would depend on the game. You okay. you might do either a simple majority or a two thirds majority to end it. Okay. Um, and you might even have ways to force players to vote specific ways if you gain ultimate cosmic power. Maybe. Uh huh. Okay. But it could be cool. It could be an interesting way to go about it. I think I think it could be done. I think it would end up looking more like uh, two rooms in a boom than like risk. Mm-hmm. If it were going to work well, I think it would be less bored and more building. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think that would, but but I want it to work so bad. Speaking of which, two rooms in a boom is another uh, another oh, yeah. game with b- voting and pointing. Yeah, two rooms in a boom, a lot of fun, great party game. I I would really love to see it. This is what we say when we play it every time. Is I, I want to see it played with you know like eighty people. Sure. Um, it, where so much of the like bluffy. You want to go over real quick what it is? So two rooms in a boom, you have... it. it I think it starts at 10 players. And I think, goes I think it works with eight. Because I think we've done it with eight. It's a high count game. But yeah. it goes up to 30, 40, however many you want, almost. Yeah. Um, each player has is on a team, either the red or blue team. Blue team, one member is the president. Red team, one member is the bomber. The goal of the, the, the players are randomly shuffled between two rooms, so you don't know where anybody is. You don't know who's your teammates. You don't know who is the president. You only know your own team and your own role. And you have a card that tells yeah. you those things. And then your job, if you're on the red team, is to try to manipulate things over the course of a few rounds of trading players between the rooms so that the bomber is in the room with the president. If you're on the blue team, your goal is the opposite. Manipulate things so that the president is not in the room with the bomber. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, you, so there's 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 rules governing. As the game expands, there's there's special rules with different cards that have yeah. different things. And there's there's rules governing how you trade players between the rooms and yeah. what, what information you can and have to reveal at different times. But it, at a nutshell, that's what you got going on. A lot of fun, great if you have a lot of people. Simple, too. Like I've haven't I don't know that I've ever had a problem explaining it to people. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. Even people I don't think of as board game people, which is to say normal people with healthy, well-adjusted views of the world who <sighs> aren't, you know, the way Johannes and I are. Recording a podcast about board games. Yeah, just, just you know, decent human beings who go forth and succeed at life. Uh, they've learned how to play two rooms in a room and fallen under our dread spell and spiraled into darkness and horror. Which is to say, actually enjoyed it. Yeah, they had a great time. I forget what I was going to say about two rooms. I knew this was going to happen. Sure. I was going to say something about it, and then I said you should describe the... the uh, um, we could go back and listen. We could, but no, we're not going to do that. We don't do that. We don't We don't ever do that. So you were saying two rooms in a boom. It's got voting mechanics. It's interesting. It's fun. It's engaging. Uh, you want to see it played with 80 people? Yeah. I don't Vot- know if that's where me- I was going with that. Voting mechanics are more interesting with more people. They are more interesting with more people. I think that game in general would just be more interesting with more people mm-hmm. because the sort of, you know... With with four on four or five on five, there's not a good way to be like, hey, I'll show you my card if you show me yours without everyone else in the room being aware of that happening. Right, right. Really having to hide your card, but also knowing that like, okay, you know, if if I show Tom my card and he smiles or, or whatever, you know, we're probably on the same team or he learned something like that. But it, it's like everyone knows that his whatever his reaction was, was his reaction. Yeah. Whereas if you had 40 people in each room, I could be over in a corner and be like, hey, I'll tell you what, what my I'll show you my card if, if you tell me that you're the mm-hmm. bomb, <laughs> whatever it is. Yeah. And and you could do that and potentially no one else would know. Right. And you could both go on your merry way. Uh, and I think it would make it a lot harder to win the game in, or, or even figure out the game in, you know, five rounds or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a better way for it to work than everyone stand in a circle and there are actually no personal interactions. Yeah, it, it's it's a game that that wants a certain. It, it's, it, it's better at a certain at certain thresholds, and it and it's very different at certain levels. Like if you've only got eight people, that's a very very different game from if you've got. 20 people well another thing they've done with the voting mechanic in that game that's very interesting is it's you you're not it's, it's almost like a, a sort of weird abstraction of a representative democracy in that you don't vote for the actual outcome the team do, or the room doesn't vote for who the the hostage will that be that's traded mm-hmm. they vote for who the leader is and the leader oh, yeah. gets to make that choice regardless of of what the rest of the room wants so you can at any point basically point at someone else and say, I want to change and vote for them to be the leader. And even the leader can do that. They're like, I don't want to be it anymore. And you point at the person and that starts a vote. But all you're doing is voting for the person who may be you or may not be. You're voting for the person who you hope will best represent what you want to happen, ideally without showing your own hand to the rest sure. of the room too much. Yeah, that's a good Which point. is actually a more interesting approach to a voting mechanic than an outright vote, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it can be applied in every situation. It certainly can't. You basically have to be in a team versus team kind of setup for mm-hmm. that to work at all, but it, it's intriguing. Right. Systems where you vote for somebody to be able to do something and they aren't bound to do any particular thing once they have the power. Yeah. But, I mean, that could work in a... In a, in a um, strategy type game too where you vote for the uh you know the arch wizard or whatever and uh-huh. that player has 
power that's going to impact how the game progresses, but sure. doesn't necessarily have to use it in any particular way. You just pick somebody and they, they do it. Yeah, but it's, it's harder to do, or at least harder to make as interesting in a situation where you know who the enemies and the good guys sure. are. You know, it, it has to be two groups pitted against each other and there has to I think be some secrecy about yeah, who is on I agree. which I agree that um, makes it more interesting we're, we're going a little long on this segment so we should wrap it up I wanted to mention that while not necessarily engaging um, a voting mechanic is an excellent way to resolve rules disputes as long as you are work and if you write into the game that's the thing if you have a, a rules dispute in a game and it's just like, well, we'll just vote on it. That person who is on the losing side of the vote is probably still just going to be pissed mm-hmm. and maybe not like continue not playing by the rule that or what, whatever, sure. n- not abiding by whatever your decision was. But if it is written into the game rules that you know, if this becomes a problem, vote on it. And here's a tie break if necessary. Now it's taken care of and it's in the rules. And I find at least with the groups of people that we tend to play with. Uh, even if there is one kind of uh, problem child who who tends to be the one who gets upset and won't play by the rules or whatever, if it's written into the game rules, they're going to be more willing to mm-hmm. take it at face value and, and, and abide by whatever decision is made by the group. Right. If you've got something written down, you can point to. And, and we've talked about it before. Sorry to interrupt you again. No, we, we, we do this a lot when it's, it's stupid stuff like deciding who's the first player, like any mutually agree- agreeable means. Yeah. Even writing that into the rules saying there we don't we don't we don't have a way for you to do this but we're telling you to come up with a way to do this Mm -hmm. that rule in and of itself is often enough to to forestall those issues and and if if it does become a problem you've always got the universal rule of you know you've got you have six-sided dice you're a board game player don't lie to me you have one it's right there (laughs) you probably have one that's your favorite you have a name for it whatever roll it Assign one to three is one outcome, four to six is the other, just and then you're done. You don't yeah. have to think about it anymore. It's done. It's taken care of. You can move on with your life. Voting. You should vote in like real life elections because they impact stuff. Though the phrase get out the vote is stupid and doesn't make sense. Sure. And even if you're super mad about <laughs> the people like running for president, oh, but don't just not vote. Like, show up. You can leave that line blank and vote for the rest of the stuff. There's other stuff on that ballot. You should vote for the other stuff. Turns out. Like, you, even if you're you're one of those people like, oh, I don't want to throw my, my vote away on a third-party candidate, just leave it blank. It's fine. You can do that. Show up. Vote for stuff. Make your voice heard, son. Though, if you're the sort of the person who thinks that you can throw away your vote, but then would not vote for that yeah, reason... Yeah, I guess that's not a real person. Just don't vote, because, yeah, you, you don't deserve a vote no you deserve a vote everybody deserves a vote <laughs> democracy doesn't work if everybody doesn't deserve a vote damn it <laughs> farts i just wanted to be mean to some group of people and i feel like i've i've, I've accomplished just that be, so be mean to you um, if you would like to be mean to tom please do so <laughs> via twitter at mildly alarming or on his own personal twitter account at mongrel idiot which probably has some zeros or an underscore in it i don't know i don't think it does it's well, just mongrel idiot that or you can be mean to the pair of us by email at mildlyalarmingshow at gmail.com. Or you could be mean still just to Tom. I'll read it aloud to him uh, <laughs> in the comments section of the website at mildlyalarming.com or on facebook.com slash mildlyalarmingshow. Or you can convene a quorum so long as you're able to get sufficient people to do it uh, and submit 
your bill for approval and accept amendments during the period of commentary and public response and await for such things to occur as will bring it from committee to subcommittee and then back to primary committee, at which point it will be voted upon by the full committee with input from the subcommittee. And uh, then things will commence onward there as the chairman will pertain vis-a-vis... The Mildly Alarming Podcast is brought to you by Mildly Alarming Radio News. Because when news breaks in your area, the first place you go is an internet podcast recorded nearly a week in advance. Your life matters, and we're dedicated to providing you with the news and information you need to live it in a statistically optimal way. Whether it's Weatherby B. Weatherbyton with the weather, Hal Ricker Vanderbutton with stocks, or Linda Palpala Palpadon with sports, you'll get only the finest and most almost accurate news from our team. I thought the meteorologist was Clifton Farmyard. It turns out you are correct. Catch the Mildly Alarming Radio News Team's Mildly Alarming Radio News Radio News Hour every hour on the hour on the Mildly Alarming Podcast Mildly Alarming Radio News Breaking News Break segment. Or don't. I'm Chep Holstein. And I'm Reginald St. Kevin. Good evening. You know what the best airport is? Green Bay. Really? Yeah. Very nice. Kind people. Small so you get through fast. It's just great. It's just a great experience overall to go through the Green Bay Airport. The not the no longer new but new uh, Northwest or Delta now hub at uh, Detroit Metro, the big one that's like a long shopping oh, sure. mall, yeah, yeah. has won awards for the best airport shopping experience. It's like a long strip mall, but it's got those moving sidewalks, so I huh. guess that's something. It's got that going for it. There's that fountain thing. Yeah, that's true. It like fountains and I like whatnot. the Detroit airport because they got that one tunnel under the tarmac that's like got the lights. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. cool when you go through there. I think a lot of them have that. Yeah, but it's... You probably haven't driven at most of the other airports you've been to, though. Driven? I didn't drive that. I walked it. That seems like a bad plan. You can't drive it. You just walk it. We're not talking about the same thing. We can't possibly be talking no. about the same thing. I'm talking about like you're going from one terminal to the other, uh-huh. and there's a tunnel underground that you go through, and it's got like crazy psychedelic lights and stuff in oh, it. I haven't seen that. I believe you, but I haven't seen it. It's that. totally there, yeah, but... Okay. Welcome back to the Mildly Alarming... Um, it's an airport, airport podcast, podcast where we AirPods. Where we, ta- we talk about... AirPods. AirPods. <laughs> <laughs> where we talk about our favorite and least favorite airports in the world. I'm Tom Rich. And I'm Johanna Stauffer. Uh, that's Johannes Wayne's Stauffer. Uh, airports are bullshit. <laughs> they just suck from start to finish. Just a festival of garbage. I don't know. What about... No, you're right. There are no good airports. Uh, I haven't been to one, if there is one. I don't think there are The any. best thing you can say about the Madison, Wisconsin airport is it's over quickly. I enjoyed... Uh, these are probably gone now, mm-hmm. uh, but in... I think both Gatwick and Heathrow had these in London. Um, there were these smoking sections, but they they initially were just like fenced in, which mm-hmm. was already funny enough because it's like you can't go outside the fence indoors. Indoors. Yeah. yeah. You can't go outside the fence with your cigarette. Sure. It's the, the peeing section in a swimming pool. Old <laughs> joke, right? Then... They began to realize, oh, smoke just kind of moves around of its own volition. Right. We're going to keep the exact same size, but it's going to be a glass box. Oh, my God. It was like a zoo attraction <laughs> full of sad people. 
and you could sort of see them, That's those incredible. smokers in the mist, <laughs> through the haze. <laughs> and it was... It was glorious, that's, but I'm sure they're now gone because you're not allowed to smoke anywhere in the that's, UK anymore. That's incredible. That's just majestic. You just wanted to knock on the glass and see if they look, you know? <laughs> Did you? No. You no, I didn't. Have. You totally should have. I didn't feel like getting in a fight with a depressed person in an international a, a depressed, airport. A depressed Englishman. Well, not necessarily. It was, you know, it's an international airport. They could yeah. have been from anywhere. Anywhere where being depressed and smoking is legal. So, anywhere. Almost. Well, virtually. It's probably not allowed in uh, North Korea. I, well, I think, isn't being depressed pretty much mandatory? Well, I guess it's not mandatory, but it's sort of a... You don't have a choice, a, but it's still not allowed. Man, that's rough. That's yeah. a bad beat. Uh, Windsor Airport was small. Yeah, they're right next to Detroit. Why do they need one? They don't, probably, but yeah. I guess the Canadians don't always want to come over to use the Detroit airport. You don't want to have to bring your passport when you're not actually intending to leave the country. <laughs> what if you were at the Windsor airport and you were Canadian, so you're you're like already there, uh-huh. and you wanted to go to Toronto, but you decide, you found it was cheaper to go to Detroit to fly? You would need to use your passport to cross the bridge to Detroit. Then use your passport to get onto the plane. To f- then, then And then when you get back to Canada in Toronto, you would have to use your passport to get back into Canada. Yeah. That'd be rough. It would probably never be cheaper, though. No. Because like, most of the time, it's cheaper to fly out of Canada, even if you're not going to other parts of Canada. Yeah. That's Which is I'm... why I have been crammed in a van with a bunch of other sweaty teenagers to uh, fly out of Toronto Airport. Oh, you drove all the way to Toronto? You we drove to, to Toronto and, and flew to my, uh, Belfast. My wife flew out of Windsor when she went to Europe recently. Yeah. And it was cheaper that way. Yeah. Except it was, it was cheaper in money. But it was more expensive in amount of time I had to spend driving to Windsor and back. And omelets. And oh, and omelettes. That's <laughs> sure. how you pronounce sure. that. So I went to Canada. Did we have this conversation on the air already? I think so. We talked about casino games. Okay. No, but I mean about the omelet that I. Oh had. no, you didn't talk about. You didn't tell us you, about you your. You recommended omelet. if I went to Canada that I should try them. Yeah, it's cool. I didn't know. I didn't know that was a way you could prepare eggs. Yeah, you're a big idiot. But uh, the, the omelet that I had in Canada was actually different. Mm-hmm. From omelets that yeah. I've had elsewhere. And then I learned, listening to something else with a just a brief, pointless reference to omelets, that apparently that's the traditional way to make omelets, and apparently every omelet I've ever had has been wrong. Oh. Where it's multiple, like, thin layers of egg, just mm-hmm. kind of like a lot of them, so it looks like a bunch of little thin crepe omelets. I feel like if you were going to prepare that kind of omelet, like, you'd need a lot of pans to prepare each of the separate layers. Well, I think it's not actually, like, multiple. I think you're just, like like... Letting the egg move back and forth in your weird round omelet pan. And so it comes out looking like a bunch of layers instead mm-hmm. of all sticking guam egg oh. together. See, I don't understand fully the difference between an omelet and a scrambled egg. So, Well, generally you can fold over an omelet. I fold my scrambled eggs all the time. Well, then they're not scrambled eggs. Oh. Maybe I've been making omelets this whole time and didn't it, know it's it. It's entirely possible. <laughs> this has been the Eggs Podcast with <laughs> Johannes and Tom... AirPods rich. Ah, <laughs> uh, good times. We have fun here. We have a great time making this podcast, though. I, I'm sure you can tell. I'm sure you're happy to be here with us, listening the, to it's this. It's the best. We have so much fun. Was that convincing? No. Oh. Not at all. It was the opposite of convincing. Well, what are you going to do? It made me think that maybe you don't like coming to my house every other week and recording a podcast. Well, you have an evil cat, which I'm allergic to, and you smell real bad. So, like, those two things are already strikes against what was otherwise, like, a mediocre at best. (laughs) (laughs) That's just mainly because I don't uh, take showers. 
Yeah, that, that'll do that. That's the main one. Mm-hmm. That causes me to smell that way. Yeah. And causes you to have a cat. Yeah, that's where the cat comes from. He emer- He's an emergent property of no showers. It's gross. <laughs> if you stop showering, a cat will appear. <laughs> that's how it goes, right? So, for those of you who have always wanted a cat but haven't known how to get one, turns out, stop showering. Or you could use my strategy where you just steal him off the street and don't tell his owners. Well, yeah. I mean, I didn't do that. Didn't he happen. stole himself of his own volition. He stole himself right into my heart. Sure. What's the segment of game? Podcast on and the dog Words called? St- and, yeah. <laughs> Place number time. I don't. Uh, do you smell oranges? Area. No, that's just me. I'm making oranges. Oh, <laughs> how are you making them? <laughs> Normally, I think you smell toast when you're having a stroke. I think you smell oranges sometimes. I've I've never I've never smelled oranges or had a stroke, so I oh, couldn't tell that's you. That's fair. Yeah. There's a there's that one scene in Mad Men. I don't uh-huh. know if you ever watched Mad Men. Nope. Where uh, the guy, the 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 grandfather is eating ice cream with the uh, the daughter, and he's like, "Do you smell oranges?" And then he has a stroke and dies, and it's traumatic. Spoiler alert! <laughs> <laughs> They're not super helpful after the spoiler, but oh, I didn't understand how those work. I don't actually know what we're talking. Oh, shoots and ladders. Shoots and. And ladders. Or previously snakes and ladders. And probably still snakes and ladders. In so some this places. is a segment called Remaking the Game, where we take a game that is garbage and we make it into a game that is fun. I don't have a musical sting for this one. Oh, okay. Uh, so Shoots and Ladders is a game that you probably played as children, or maybe you didn't. I don't know. I don't know your life. Where you roll a dice and you move that many spaces. If you roll a six, you get to roll again and go. You get an extra turn. If you land on a space with a ladder, you get to move ahead to whatever space that ladder leads to. If you uh, land on a space with a chute, you get to move backward to wherever that chute leads. Well, not get to. Have to. Have to. And that's uh, that's the game. That is literally the entire game. I think we just explained the whole game. There's no more to chutes and ladders than that. In the in the current published Milton Milton Bradley, do they yeah. even exist anymore? Whoever it is now. Are they one of the ones that got bought by Parker Brothers? Or did they buy Parker Brothers? Who I knows? Think, I think the Parker Brothers murdered Milton Bradley, and now uh, Hasbro. Oh, Hasbro, that's another one. The, uh... At any rate, there are 100 spaces. Mm-hmm. You start off the board and have to roll. I think you have to roll a one to get onto the first space. I don't remember. At any rate, then you have to get to the top and not accidentally slide down a shoot, and you have... No agency whatsoever. Yeah, sometimes the they make you roll the exact number to land on the final space. Like if you're three away and you roll a six, you just you have to wait. To go there. And that's not a um. Yeah. So this game sucks. Yeah, we're wondering how we can remake it into a fun game while it still recognizably is shoots and ladders. So what do we have to keep in order for this game to remain its thing? I think you have to keep. Probably the shoots. And I would guess also the ladders. Though, the game was initially snakes and ladders, and they changed the snakes to shoots because they were too frightening for children. So I I think the important thing here is that the the snakes and the shoots are functionally indistinguishable. Right. So we have to keep that mechanic. But if we choose to change the shoots to spaghetti or an alligator or... (laughs) What Dennis the, Quaid. So what are the ladders going to be if the shoots are spaghetti? They can still be ladders. Why would we change that? We could change it, though. But why? Why not? If We're cha- we're already changing the shoots into spaghetti. 
that was an option. Couldn't the ladders be like, I don't know, um, ranch dressing? No, I feel like that would be a downward. Uh, you slip on the ranch dressing and you go okay. and you fall. Okay, so so spaghetti and ladders. That's what we're making here. Spaghetti and ladders. Spaghetti and also ladders. It could be spaghetti and challah bread. <laughs> I feel like you could climb some challah bread. You could probably climb some challah bread. What is challah bread? It's uh, it's like a braided... Uh, it's Jewish. It's a bread. Mm. Those are the things I know about it. <laughs> a braided Jewish bread? Yep. It wears a yarmulke oh. and it uh, observes the high holidays. Does it have those kind of curly... Uh, sideburns Only going on? if it's, I believe, Hasidic challah bread. <laughs> oh, my God. This has been the Mildly Offensive Podcast with Johannes and I Tom. think everything I said was correct. That's probably right. Anyway, uh, so we've got um, spaghetti and challah bread is the game we're making. It needs to be recognizably <laughs> shoots and ladders, except good. So if you land on challah bread, you get to move forward. You get a bonus. And if you wind up on spaghetti, you go backward. Because Jews are better than Italians. <laughs> <laughs> now it's offensive. Only to Italians. That's true. I guess I, that's allowed. I don't think they listen it's to the allowed. podcast. It's <laughs> allowed. Oh, my God. <laughs> so um, what do we need to lose? Well, like, I, I think the thing that makes shoots and ladders kind of bollards is that there's no agency. Right. You, you roll and you go that far and then that's the end. It is the, the very definition of roll and move. Sure. So what if, as a simple thing to do it... You got to roll two dice instead of one. Uh-huh. And you could either move the total, the sum distance of the two dice, uh-huh. or bank one of them for your next turn, and then you would only get to roll one, but you get to add it to that other one. Uh, you played, We played with that a little bit in the remaking the game for Monopoly, I think. Not not necessarily banking, but uh-huh. you know, making adding some agency, and I like that. Uh, it's kind of shoehorned in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess if you're going to try to keep the soul of the game intact, you probably have to do things that way. That does add some agency because you can kind of count ahead and you can see, oh, I'm going to hit a shoot or and, and go down. I don't want to do that, so I'm going to bank one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's not bad. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that it makes it interesting, but I, I just wanted to point out actually two things while we're talking about the um, how, how to keep the soul of the game. Have you ever played Parcheesi? Yes, long time ago. Okay, though. I've never played Parcheesi. Is this is it also a strictly roll and move? Is there any? I don't remember. Oh, well, I guess that doesn't go very far with this segment. Um, it turns out snakes and ladders is uh is is originally from India and it comes from the uh, similar sort of series of games, uh, Ludo, Parcheesi, um, and there are a couple of others in there that I'm not even gonna try to pronounce. Um, there's a a level of uh, is it J- Jainism? J A I N. I think it's. I've I think heard it's it just said Jainism. J- uh, like philosophy tied into all of those games to some sure. degree, uh, in in ways that I don't I don't fully understand, and I didn't bother to read the whole Wikipedia article to find out. Mm-hmm. But um, I probably should have done that. Uh, so so I, I wonder if knowing more. I was hoping knowing more about. Parcheesi and the other games that came around the same time and are, are somehow related. We could mm-hmm. find out a little bit more about why, you know, if, if roll and move means anything, if, if the original uh, iterations of of snakes and ladders had more going on, at least uh, in what was being communicated to the players, uh-huh. you know, if, the, if there was a meaning to the different 
spaces you could land on or or whatever or if it was literally just a, a roll and move game because if you look at the mathematics of the game which is uh actually a segment in this article which is beautiful uh i think it says um here we go a two-player game is expected to end in 47.76 moves with a 50.9 percent chance of winning for the first player like it's so simple it's, to break down yeah, it, statistically it's, that it's just like yeah you can just run the yep. math and you know how it works so uh you're you're you know split up the two dice and and be able to bank one gives a little more agency there's still it's uh, still solvable i think at that point well i mean well i mean yeah you you would need to solve what was the optimal move on any given die roll but it it, it adds a little more complexity to it yeah um so then you could say i don't know if you'd want to do this in addition or instead of banking you could also say you could choose to subtract one from the other or you mm-hmm. could choose to move backward instead of forward um if you wanted to keep some chance in there you could say you you may choose to move backward or forward but you have to say that before you roll that's the kind of thing you tend to see with that sort mm-hmm. of um little add-on mechanic sure uh but we'll stick with yours i think it adds All more right. agency and less chance you could mm-hmm. put things on the various squares and i think basically what we're doing here is walking into sort of candyland territory right which is also not a great game um but at least has a little more engagement there than just literally roll move roll move maybe fall down a snake right because you know the key thing that makes a game interesting is having a choice to make on your turn yeah if all you've got is roll and hope for the best you're not playing a game you're 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 pumping the arm on a slot machine yeah and as we discussed last week we hate slot machines they're not great they're not fun um so being able to bank a dice is good what else can you do while you're keeping those those snakes and those ladders or those shoots and those ladders. I mean, if you wanted to go a little more complex on the on the physical pieces, if you could make it so that there's a way, so say like the both the the snakes and the ladders are on spinners, mm-hmm. and so now the board is different every time because you can you, part of setup will be like you know flick the spinner mm-hmm. and they physically move around so they're connecting different squares each time. So now you've got a different board, so. That may might potentially. I mean, they're going to have to be a consistent length, right? What and if, and you're going to have to fight with the fact that sometimes it's going to end up with you know the tail of the snake off the board, and you have to adjust it. What if you just de-randomize that and said on your turn, you know, you, you roll your dice, either move or bank, uh-huh. know, as normal, and then pick one snake or one ladder and move it. Well, so that's where I was getting to. Sure. Okay. So you, yeah. you could say that's part of the setup or not. I mean, you pretty much have to, if they're movable, they're going to move in the box. Mm-hmm. So you, you have to either have a, an ex- initial setup or say ra- randomize it. You know, say, you know, snake A always starts with its tail on 13 yeah. and yeah, its yeah, head yeah. on 96 or whatever. That's an absurd snake. That would not be good. It's a long snake. Yeah. At, at any rate, uh, something like that. But then, so yes, either allow them to move a snake or a ladder every time or allow, you know, certain spaces give that opportunity, mm-hmm. which again, maybe you, you either have to do when you land, only if you land on it, when you land on it, or you could bank it and save it at some point to use kind of like a trap, like, haha, you hit that snake. And also I'm going to make that snake way worse. Sucker. Sure. That kind of thing. Um, still not a great game, but better. Mm-hmm. Once or twice, yeah, more amusing and more more engaging. Yeah, still not one you're gonna get you know real play out of. Yeah, though it does open up potentially. Now this is hard because if they're 
I guess if you get rid of the spinners, if they're no longer anchored to the board and you can just move them around, mm-hmm. but maybe you can only move, you know, you can move the ends of them, you know, one space at a time. So now you've got a little bit of strategy in where they end up and what they connect to. Mm-hmm. You could end up like moving. So like a ladder and a snake connect at the same space. So someone might hit a ladder and be like, yes, I just skipped three rows. And you're like, nope, because I just moved a snake to where you just got to. And it dropped you down four because it was a longer snake than the ladder you climbed. Sure. Sucker. I don't know. It, I, I like the idea of adding a little more strategy. You can look at the board. And so you might actually even want, well, I don't know. I was going to say you might want to get rid of the the agency and the roll and move. So now mm-hmm. all of the strategy can be focused on moving the snakes and the ladders around. So, so you're still moving, you're moving purely randomly, but every turn you get to move a snake or a ladder. Yeah. So your piece is moving, but it, I guess it makes it a little easier to plan your own turn and to plan. So I guess you, you could still keep the agency and the dice rolling. Sure. What but if, basically you're saying like, I know that I can move up to, is it two dice you're rolling? I sure. could move up to 12 on a move. And so I'm going to try to hit what I think is the optimal, you know, the optimal mm-hmm. place to, place the tail of this or the head of this snake or whatever if, mm-hmm. if they you know if, if we always say head is at the top tail is at the bottom for the sake of clarity um so that this guy I'm, I'm hoping on his next move is going to land on the snake instead of not the question is do you get to move one end of one device one space every turn so you have to slowly inch toward what you're trying to do so the other player can see what you're doing or like how, how do you how do you control the movement because a problem you're going to run into is a, a snake and a ladder are both going to be a set length so if you're moving the head to the right on the board mm-hmm. eventually you're going to reach a point where the tail doesn't go as far and so yeah do you I, say i does think it, it pivot on the on the I, other I, end does I, it pivot in the middle i think you have to say that the snake just moves universally it just moves to two spaces that are the appropriate distance of distance apart you just pick it up and move it to a new spot. But anywhere you, you, you on the board? That, I feel like that seems like too much. That could like, be. Yeah. So so I guess this could answer the question potentially. You, I, I feel like there's probably some math to be done, but you would probably do this in such a way that setting lengths for the snakes and ladders and then sizes of the squares, you should never end up with an ambiguous, is that snake on you know, 101 or, or 91 mm-hmm. if, if they're 10 wide. Right. Um, so is it on a line or is it on a space, basically? Um, I don't know if that's the case, but I think it should be doable. So say you can move the head or the tail one square every turn, but it, it just pivots on whichever end you're not moving. And for the ladders, it's the top or the bottom. So you can pivot it mm-hmm. and it's just you can only move one or the other. So hopefully it should swing clearly enough that it's either on this square or that sure. square. You could, if you really wanted to get fancy with it, um, borrow our uh, our string idea from the string trader game uh-huh. and use that to draw the snakes and the ladders. I'm not sure exactly how that would change things. I but, don't know that it would. But it would look neat. It would look neat. I think, I think we're getting towards something interesting, which is a type of game we don't generally make mm-hmm. that is a little more chess-like in its strategy, where it's like, what what is my optimal optimal move both for my own pieces or piece i guess or what if we introduced multiple pieces oh so you've got to you've got to divvy up your resources to mo- advance multiple tokens yeah up the board that could be fun what if we want to step further this might be useless 
What if you're coming from alt op opposite ends of the board? Mm -hmm. So now we've the problem with that is it makes it a two-player game instead of a however many player game. Mm -hmm. But say we make it a two-player game, you're coming from opposite ends of the board, and a ladder for you is a snake for the other player, and vice versa. Ooh, cool. So in making an optimal move of a ladder for yourself, you have to be careful because that also means you're creating an optimal move potentially of of a of a shoot to get to sure. to you. Sure. Or I guess sure. like or would ladders have to work the same way both ways for that to work? I think I don't know. I guess it could go either way, right? So if you say a ladder for me is a shoot for you, that means this gets me towards you quicker and doesn't help you. That makes it less strategic. Mm -hmm. If you say a ladder is a ladder, that means right because now up for me is down for them. Does that make sense? Okay, I think if I they're coming it. toward me, the enemy's gate is down. Except yeah. in this case, the enemy's gate is up. So yeah, you'd want to keep a ladder, a ladder, I guess, to mm -hmm. make it a little a little tougher to do. So if I set up a ladder that helps me, you know, jump a couple rows to get to you faster, I have to be careful because that's also creating a ladder that's going to create let you skip a couple rows getting to me. Mm -hmm. And then. So the question is, what's the end game now? If we're, if we're sending, it's almost like the game Lemmings, right? Where you mm -hmm. just have these rows and of uh, of troops moving. Sure. And they they still may move on a roll. Yeah. Uh, but it might be like whoever has the most and the other players, either first first to ten at the other players mm -hmm. start, or whoever has the most at the end of a certain amount of time or a certain number of turns. Um. And and all of your troops, I guess all your troops just kind of trample along at the same speed. Mm -hmm. There's a but lot then of cool you, like maybe if here. you roll doubles, that's how that's how you add another guy onto the board or something I mean, like I mean, that. What if what if you didn't necessarily move? What if you did it with like a a, a dice pool system? Uh huh. Where say you you've you've got a chart of what a one two three four five or six on a die roll does. Like say a one means. You can move your shoot your your little shooter ladder thing around. Uh -huh. A two means you can advance one of your tokens one space. A three means you can do something else. That kind of a thing. I feel like that goes a little too far. I like where you're too going, but I think we've gone too far. Well, try this. So you've got multiple troops coming along, and they're they're moving. Either they're moving on a roll, or maybe they just always move one space at a time. Mm -hmm. But then, so say I've got a guy coming up, and you've got a guy coming down. When they meet each other, so I'm on fifty, and you're on. Well, I guess if you're coming down, mm -hmm. I'm on 49 and you're on 50. Okay. Sure. Okay. If it's just one on one, we just stop and neither of those guys moves in the other direction. If I get another guy, now I take out your guy and my keep, or like you, I subtract. So, so if I have two on 49 and you have one on 50, mm -hmm. we remove one of yours and one of mine and my guy keeps going. So now there's actually. On the one hand, you want to keep guys going up the ladders and stuff and maybe going around that. But I might want to have one of my guys bypass a ladder just to take out one of yours and then continue on the slower way around. Okay. Does that make sense? I think I follow, yeah. I feel like it's a little simpler and there's a little bit of like a... It, it adds a little more um, strategy into mm -hmm. like where do I send my guys. You can actually almost... Then we could do what you were saying where dice mean different things, but maybe dice never mean anything for the movement of troops. Mm -hmm. They only mean things for the movement of ladders and shoots now. Cool. I actually kind of like it. I think I think we could do some fun ah, stuff. I wonder if we could make it 
without having to come up against whatever potential copyrights still exist on shoots and ladders, if there I, are any. No, I don't. I think it's different enough that it would be fine. We should try it. I've got a piece of uh, of foam board in the next room that I can make into a board for it. I'll see what I can come up with. I'll see if I can hammer out some rules for it and see if we can have it ready for Proto Spiel. That's awesome. We went a lot further on this than I expected to, and we're actually over time. So, so cool. Yeah. If that sounded interesting to you at all, or if it didn't, or if we missed something obvious, or if you have ideas, anything really, uh, we would love your feedback on games and podcasts and uh, ice cream flavors. Mm-hmm. You should let us know on Twitter at Mildly Alarming. You should let us know on the internet at MildlyAlarmingShow at gmail.com. Which is a- a- another part of the internet. You could also <laughs> do that on the website in the comments section at suction, the comments section. <laughs> At www.mildlyalarming.com or on facebook.com slash mildlyalarmingshow. You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play Music, or RSS on the website. You can leave comments and reviews in most of those places. Please do. Five stars are appreciated. Those are the things. Or if Shoots and Ladders is any kind of indication, you might randomly meet us and get to give us your comment in person. And that's just randomly how it happens. Or you might fall in a sewer and die. Those are your options. The only options. Those are the two things that might happen. If you fall in a sewer, say hi to the snakes that used to be part of Snakes and Ladders before it became Shoots and Ladders. They all live down there now. They're teenage mutant ninja snakes. And then they're going to eat you and you'll die. We'll be back next week. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. Good day, everyone. My name is Cleanth Hyropterus Mountainside Brandlebart, and I'm a man who enjoys good black coffee made over a fire, a plate of beans eaten with a tin fork, and riding on horses across the plains of our great nation. I am an older man, so I do not like change much, but I believe that sometimes a change can be a good thing. For example... All of my life, I've been wearing chaps. I put them on over my blue jeans, and they do a good job of protecting my legs from thickets and rattlesnakes. But I began to wonder, as I slid into my twilight years, why it is that chaps are made the way they are, that is, without a buttock. They cover the legs very well, but do not provide any such cover for the buttock. Well... I spoke to a leather worker who I know, and he was able to make me a pair of full buttock chaps. Then we spoke to some banking men who provided the capital investment to start a new business venture, Cleanth Brandlebart's Full Buttock Chaps Limited. Our chaps provide all of the protection and value that you want from a pair of chaps, but also include a full buttock design that snugly cups the buttock in a hand-tooled leather seat. You will find that you prefer the full buttock chap to the buttockless chap you used to wear, or we will guarantee a refund of the full purchase price. Thank you for listening. And please purchase a pair of Cleanth Brandlebart's full buttock chaps wherever fine leather products are sold. I have mortgaged my farm for this venture and will be destitute if it fails. Good day now. Good day. <laughs>